Shall we do a sleepy podcast this time around? A sleepy podcast? Yeah, because it's very hot and also we've played too many trick-taking games yesterday. What does a sleepy podcast involve? Well, just mostly being a board game podcast, but a little sleepy, you know? (sighs) That was very good. We could use that as a sting. Okay, noted. In between all the... Oh, wait, I'm not in control. You're editing the podcast. Uh I I can't make you do this. (laughs) Elaine... Use use yourself yawning as a sting I from now on. I was going to do zzz as well, but that just sounds like a B. It was supposed to be like Zeds for oh, like right, snoring, like sleep. Nice, yeah. Why, why do you use Zeds for sleep? I don't know. If anyone knows, please write in Elaine at nopunincluded.com and tell us why they use Zeds for sleep. <sighs> Welcome to Talk Cardboard, a podcast about board games and everything adjacent with me, Elaine, and you... Uh, wow, that was not sleepy energy at all. That was energetic. It woke me up. It jolted me right into board game territory. I am Efka. That's, that was a really long name. Yeah, it was. Please address me as that from now on. I'm not going to remember all that because I'm too asleep. On today's show, we'll be laughing at your failings in schadenfreude, working a dystopian gig economy in freelancers and moving sheep around a nonsense map of New Zealand in Great Western Trail, as well as an interview with Kieran Gillen, a comic book author. And now role-playing game designer. First, we've had an email from Joseph regarding an announcement we made in the last episode. They say, Thanks for another Banger Talk Cardboard episode. I appreciate your policy that you will not be accepting games from publishers without your express purchase. This is very fair and exemplary in light of current issues of abused trust in the industry. Transparency and honest choices set a good and effective example of best practices that serve to maintain and build trust and truth in media as well as commercial integrity. However... While I was considering the varied implications of your decision, something occurred to me. I will explain. You have an ownership of a collection which will not be increased unless you opt to purchase more items of your choosing, which will validate your interest as not compromised. This is valid. Now consider the following question. How will this affect how you may be able to accept gifts of games and such from family, loved ones and close friends who, likely as not, would like to give you such items. Well, the new regulations do not prevent us from accepting gifts from family and loved ones, uh, as long as they're not publishers or or a brand, basically. So I, I, I can accept freely anything I want. It's just that if it's a brand, I have to then label the whole thing as ad, which is very inconvenient. Uh, and also, yeah, I don't know. I I, th- I think some people also uh, worryingly express that, like, oh, if you won't be accepting review copies, will that limit how many options you have for reviewing? And the answer to that is no, because we've mostly been buying our own games for a while now anyway. We did used to get some review copies, and, and some are still trickling in from arrangements made previously, our decision, basically. So, uh, you know, it, it, will, it will level things out. And, and another thing I kind of like to mention, I think our decision uh, to not accept review copies is, is the same decision as deciding to accept, continue accepting review copies. One isn't somehow nobler or, or better than the other. It's just something that suits our channel and falling in line with regulations, you know. I definitely agree that there needs to be more oversight in how people are being marketed to because, you know, marketing is a, is a, can be a very insidious thing. It can be a good thing as well. 
but uh, currently, if you want my opinion on the way that UK regulatory bodies are going about it, it's <laughs> I don't think they're doing it very well because I think this this whole thing created more confusion and and more unnecessary um, kind of blanket labeling of everything that that doesn't really clarify the picture to the end user uh as you explained in the previous ed- episode mm. so you know it's it's just a decision there's nothing particularly noble or good about it it's just something that makes sense to us and is kind of difficult for us as well because you know financially it is going to be a little bit more restraining but to once again reiterate the the actual answer to your question is it will not affect friends and family giving things to us because friends and family can still give things to us as long as they don't represent the brand of the thing that is, you know, we're then talking about. So I don't have any immediate uh, family members publishing board games right now. I have a couple of friends who are in the uh, board game publishing industry, but uh, they don't they don't tend to give me things anyway. So n- not really an issue. <laughs> on the subject of announcements, you might be noticing that this episode went out on Monday rather than on Friday. And... Um, just in case you missed us saying this everywhere else, uh, Talk Hardboard now goes out on Mondays because the deal is that there will be a new NPI thing every Monday. On one Monday, it will be a video on youtube.com slash no pun included. And uh, on another Monday, it will be Talk Hardboard, this podcast you're listening to right now. So new date for all NPI things is Monday. And if you like this podcast and want more of it, there's bonus episodes coming out to Patreon subscribers, patreon.com slash no point included, uh, where also they'll get the episodes early. And with this change, even a couple of days earlier on a dedicated feed where you get the main episodes, bonus episodes, everything together. If you want more talk cardboard, patreon.com slash no point included. First up, we have Schadenfreude, which comes from publisher Studio Turbine by designer CTR with an uncredited artist. Ooh, that exciting. That seems to be a common thing at the moment. The- M- mystery artists. Yeah, mystery artists. Well, um, so this is... How do I preface this? Because <laughs> I'm going to gush. I don't know if you're going to gush. I'm going to gush. Just and as, as soon as this preface ends, there will be so much gushing. But but there's also a disclaimer, and that disclaimer is that it's going to be very hard for you to get your hands on this game. So Schadenfreude is a trick-taking game, but it's, uh, as many trick-taking games these days, it's uh, published in Japan and uh, in small print runs, and getting it over here it can be tricky and expensive. Uh, there are various ways of doing it. There are importing websites that import little games. Uh, I know there's... Uh, one in US and one in UK, uh, or you can also use a mail forwarding option. There's this various ways. But this is one of the best trick-taking games I've ever played. It is so good. It is so phenomenally good. Um, I, I'm absolutely smitten and in love. And if you're not familiar with trick-taking games, Elaine, do you want to explain them? Or or shall I do the <laughs> explanation? Ahead. Okay, all right, okay. So trick-taking games are card games. You might be familiar with some that you used to play with your grandpa or grandma or whatever in the olden days. You might be familiar with them 
uh, because you've played Hearts on Windows 95, <laughs> uh, which is a trick-taking game. You might be familiar with them because you played you know, in bridge clubs, because bridge is a trick-taking game, or Euchre, or Schnapsen, or Durak, or any number of other various regional classic trick-taking games that can be played with a 52-card deck. Uh, but now there's this explosion, this new boom, this whole zeitgeist, this movement. Trick-taking games are re-emerging. Did you know, Elaine? I've told you this a thousand times, so you do know, but that just for the audience. Did you know it's the oldest genre of... of of card game in the world wow this is brand new information <laughs> to me do you know that it's responsible for concepts like suits and jokers and stuff like this that this is brand new information to me <laughs> i've been saying it for a while it's cool um so it is cool though yeah it is right so the idea of trick-taking games is that uh as opposed to climbing and shedding games which are offshoots of trick-taking games or variations it's hard to know what came first or later um I'm, I'm sure some historians are going to correct me here. But but the idea is that you play a card of a suit. So let's say I play a spade. And then the other players usually must play uh, also a, a spade. spade. Uh, well, they might want to play a higher spade or they might want to play a lower spade. Depends in this game whether you want to tri win, win, win the, the trick, trick or not. But the, the idea is that every player in sequence plays one card. They usually have to follow suit. So if someone played a spade, they also have to play a spade if they have one, right? So and then whoever has the highest card or sometimes the lowest card or whatever, they win the trick. And that's good or bad depending on the game, right? So Schadenfreude says, okay, but what if it's everything, <laughs> right? Like what if it is like everything? So in Schadenfreude, you don't have the standard 52 card deck. You have a modified deck. There are four suits. They're in colors. This. Uh, yellow, red, green, blue, right? And then there's a special color, black, which just has two cards in it. Uh, but the cards range from minus three. Two and then in it. Yeah, and, and minus two, then minus one, and then one, two, three, four, five, seven, six, seven, eight, nine, right? Uh, Except the black one that only has a z uh, zero and a ten. Yes, right? Uh, and so it, it then plays pretty much like a standard trick-taking game. Uh, but then some weird things happen, right? So first of all, uh, the person that wins the trick is the person who played the second highest card on suit. So you don't want to play the highest card. You want to play the one that's just below the highest card. Um, and that creates a weird wrinkle because, because sometimes in trick-taking games, it's easy to know whether you're going to win a trick. So for example, if, if let's say nine is the highest card in the suit, right? You play a nine, you know you're going to win this, unless someone plays Trump or whatever, you know. But, like, good good guarantee. Here, a nine guarantees that you lose the trick, right? Which is maybe good and or bad. You don't know. Why? Well, because here's the thing. Um, you play to 40 points, right? But the winner of the game isn't the person who goes past 40 points. It's the person who lands exactly on 40 points. If anyone goes past 40 points, they immediately lose, and then the person who has the highest score... Below 40 points. Below 40, yeah. Or maybe also exactly on 40. Who knows, right? They win. And, and that's, again, such a weird concept. It's What it creates in the game is this sensation of, like, I want to be high, 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 but maybe I don't want to be the highest because people get then, can then force you to score points and bust out of the game. Uh, and 
so that's a wrinkle and then the third wrinkle which is i think my favorite and the funniest one and what makes schadenfreude I know I'm belaboring this explanation, but it's such a breezy, light, stupid, fun game that is excellent with a couple of uh, beers or other kinds of non-alcoholic beverages, if you prefer. Just, you know, any anything that's relaxing, silly and fun, because it's a smart game. It's a thinky game, but stupid things happen in it that are funny. And that's mostly derived from the scoring. So when you win the trick, uh, the card that you won the trick with will go into your scoring pile all other cards are just discarded they don't matter right so it's the card that won you the trick and let's say i won the trick with a five right so that five goes in my scoring area no other cards go into my scoring area unless someone played offsuit cards in which case let's say i led with a five blue elaine plays a six blue and then colin plays uh, free red, right? So in this case, I had the second highest because Elaine played a six, I played a five, right? Uh, Collins doesn't even count because it's offsuit, right? But because he played offsuit, that also goes in my scoring area. So I just scored five points and then three points. Those two cards are in my scoring area. If at any point I also get another five in that scoring area, the universe implodes and they cancel each other out and they disappear from my scoring area. <laughs> so instead of having 13 points now, I just have three, right? Which is such a weird concept to head your, <laughs> get your head around. But, but then when you start navigating it and you realize you can force people to win tricks... That they don't want to win because it will cancel out something they've already got. Yeah, or just sneakily sneak in a minus three, yeah. right? Or you win the trick somehow. Well, not somehow. It's not that high. You can win a trick with a minus three, right? And you already have a minus three in your scoring pile. So suddenly you've just gained yourself effectively. So, well, you've cancelled out the three. Yeah, yeah the minus, the minus three. threes. Yeah. Uh, or maybe you want to dunk a minus three into your scoring pile because you want to start losing. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. It's just raucous, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, my inner old man really liked this game a lot. For the reasons that you've said, like, it's a breezy game, but it's quite, it seems quite serious. Uh-huh. Uh, but then it devolves into daftness because of, because of the scoring and because you suddenly realise you're about to win a trick uh, and cancel out half your score. Mm. And you're like, ah, you know, uh, yeah. But then but, you realise that maybe that's good. <laughs> but then you realize maybe that's good because maybe you don't want to score those points uh but yeah having you know having people around having uh something nice to eat or drink with it you know i think it's perfect for that right yeah i guess you need to have people who are at least a little bit familiar with trick-taking games because it it plays like like the most bog standard one but that that scoring system can be kind of tricky to I get your head around. My grandma would have trounced us all on this game. Yeah, yeah, she was a good good at cards. Mm. Yeah, she was good at cards. I think she would have got her head around this immediately because she liked card games mm. um, and just wiped the floor with all of us. Um, the the yeah, there were just funny moments. I remember a friend uh, putting in a minus three into your scoring pile, and mm-hmm. you're sitting there going. Uh, and then he thought it was being clever and put in a second minus three and thought, oh, yeah, that'll be minus six. And then forgetting that they cancel each other out because there's so many niche, weird, nuanced moments in 
this game that you just kind of forget about them. But when they happen, you're not frustrated that you forgot about them. They're funny, right? Yeah. It's it's very emergent gameplay, which is very rare in trick takers because they are such mathematical mechanical games right and and that is the joy of them i certainly enjoy them for that but just having this sort of feel of like anything can happen and sometimes those things will happen because we are stupid well, is amazing i mean yeah <laughs> yeah that's not not unique to us i hope but yeah um there are there were times when we were playing yesterday when especially you, you kept or you too mm-hmm. kept trying to uh, make me lead tricks, which I think is is almost the hardest thing to do in this game mm. because you don't quite know where to start. And it's it's like with my bidding and auction uh, problem where I just don't know where to start mm-hmm. if I'm starting a bid. It's a similar sort of thing. I'm not quite sure how to lead a trick mm. uh, and what to play. And I think you kind of played into that both of you played into that because at one point I said, why are you bullying me? <laughs> like, why are you making me do things I don't want to be doing? Um, and it, it, but it was, yeah, it was just very funny, very silly. Um, and then, and then towards the end, because you wanted to get exactly 40 points and you had, I don't know, how many points did you have? I had 35. 35. And then I had five points in my scoring yes, that pile. Was it. I was yeah. like, this is amazing. And, and there then, are only three cards left. And then we were like, okay, it's time to, to ruin ruin this this joy that you're uh, feeling right now. I was ruined. But, but I mean, I'm, I'm making it sound a lot more angry, I think, than it is. It is very silly. You know, it's all done in good fun. Um, and I, I really like this game as well. Um, mm. it, it's such a pub type game. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that pleases my inner old man very much. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, another note, we only played this at free players. Uh, we played it a couple of times at free players and really enjoyed ourselves. Uh, it works really well at free. Uh, the game plays uh, from free to five. Mm. And uh, it was our friend John Cox, whose coverage kind of pointed us to this game uh and john said to me thank you john by the way uh love this game uh john said it works great at all player counts mm, so okay um uh, okay uh and john did also point out that sometimes he's had games where people win with like three points even though you know maximum oh, yeah. score is 40 because someone busts out and, and no one else is taking any points it can happen it can happen yeah, it's a very thinky game. Uh-huh. It's, it's yeah. It, there's a lot of decisions to make. Whether you want to win this trick, whether you don't, whether you can make someone else win the trick to make them lose points or make them gain too many points, or it, yeah, it's it's really different like that. Yeah, it feels different. It feels smart, but it also feels stupid. Fantastic package. If you can get your hands on Schadenfreude, do Elaine. You want to add to it? Yeah, only only that it still feels very trick takery mm. like so if you like trick taking games then this might be one that you like too it, it's not so different that you know it's it goes off piece completely yeah i agree yeah it it feels very much in the territory of trick taking games still to come we have great western trail new zealand but first a game whose description reads it's a lousy gig so it's perfect for the likes of you Freelancers comes from publisher Plant Hat Games by designer Donald Schultz with art by Chris Bryan, Alison Carl, Sam Mamoli, Sean McCoy and Carl Stjernberg. There's a lot of artists in this game. 
There are, but also it's continuing the theme of games that are smart, but also pretty stupid uh, and a lot of fun. Uh, I, I say all those things apply to freelancers by design. It why is, why and, is it called a crossroads game, Efka? Well, it's uh, because it's following this uh, weird line of games, which I'm sure by now is just a brand name because theoretically i don't think it has anything to do with the original crossroads game which was dead of winter then there was going to be another one about samurai which they axed and then there was gen 7 which we have critically panned and we were not the only one and it's now a bargain bin uh kind of purchase that you can find for i heard as low as seven pounds wow yeah that, that was a game i was sad about yeah yeah like. it, it had big ideas but yeah. but never worked out and then they recalibrated and did a very silly game called forgotten waters which we enjoyed greatly and you can find coverage of that on our youtube channel uh no pun included uh there's a video uh i liked forgotten waters a lot i thought it was very very silly uh, but it had a few moments of mechanical fiddliness. And Freelancers feels like the game uh, Forgotten Waters a lot. Yeah. And it, it feels like they're but finally... very different setting. Yeah, very different setting. Uh, but similar type of humor because mm -hmm. Forgotten Waters was like fantasy pirates, but very stupid. And this is um, post-apocalypse, but... D and D, but also very stupid. Like, like Forgotten Waters had that card, and it was like old boots or something, uh, yeah. and it, it said "ugly but functional, just like you." You know, it's that kind of humor. Yeah, but it's it's very funny. Yeah, I think that card encapsulates the entire <laughs> uh -huh. mood. Uh -huh. um, yeah, so it, it is very preposterous and very on the nose and very silly, um, and it is basically a kind of um, I guess if you wanted. Uh, to introduce someone to the idea of adventure games, mm. right? Uh, so things that feel like D&D, &D, but are pre-scripted and, you know, you don't have to improvise a narrative. You just have to provide some silly uh, prompts on your character sheet. But the rest is either a narrative delivered to you via um, audio narration, which comes uh, with the assistant app that you have to use for this game. Uh, or, you know, just sort of things that happen in the game from dice rolls or or rules or whatever, but or cards that you draw, but they, there's no kind of like improvisational uh, actual storytelling going on. Uh, it's just an adventure that you go on. That's not quite true. There is a little bit of improvisational storytelling at points. Yes. Where you have to maybe say something and see if the other players like the thing that you have said or said it in the correct way exactly uh, that has happened and I, I thought it was fun i thought it was a nice kind of um again like almost like training wheels for a, for yeah. an actual role-playing game yeah. you know well you know you try try and be spontaneous right now and and, and i think it's great for that it's that kind of grounded environment that does pushes you a little bit maybe out of your comfort zone uh, but i had i had a great time with this now i don't think this is gonna um be a slam dunk for everyone you know but but if you like uh the idea of going on a silly adventure with a lot of humor with excellent voice acting uh that i think is is greatly improved from forgotten waters where it was already really good um, then this is definitely something you should be having a look at. And if you found, and if you found Forgotten Waters fiddly, then 
um then this is less fiddly it feels you more cohesive. yeah i think it is uh forgotten waters had this whole map element with the tiles sure, you, yeah yeah i i think this just works better you just have a paper map you draw on it where you're going uh, and then press a button i guess thing happens right there's still a lot of um bits to control though especially in a two-player game in a four-player game there was fewer but in a two-player game there's a lot of different aspects to control like you're you're effectively playing uh roles mm -hmm. of these characters mm -hmm. um so you're you're fiddling dials or you're adding on tokens to certain boards uh so there's there's lots to keep up with there there's it's still a little fiddly but but not in a bad way no not in a bad way uh it's worth noting that this on the box it's minimum three players with a maximum of seven but there are two player rules i think this game maybe falls a little bit flatter too but it's it's still fine this is definitely a game that you're again gonna play in in a in a more kind of relaxed environment maybe with a few drinks with some friends wouldn't play this at a board game club unless no. you know everyone really well you know you don't want to play this with strangers because the game is weird and purposely so and i think you have to be comfortable with the it's people you're playing with it's also a little bit subversive and tongue-in-cheek mm. i think this game um the, the fact that you are freelancers in this awful world yes um, i mean that's why i read out that quote because mm. that's kind of encapsulates the the feeling of this game. Like that's who you are. You're freelancers in this awful world uh, because humanity has ruined everything uh, and you are in the trash and mm. you're just trying to scrape a living. And, and the humans are dead. There's and the humans are dead. But yeah. there is there is some theme of that through this through the narration of this game mm. of humanity has ruined everything. You're in the trash. You're just trying to scrape a living. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you have to be all right with that. Plus, uh, I don't. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think it would be good to play a board game club because you would have to have everyone listening to the narration. And board game clubs can be quite noisy places, mm -hmm. so that would be hard. You you do need to have everyone listening nicely. Yeah. Uh, what I did like about it is how simple it was to get into it. You mm -hmm. know, uh, all you need to understand really to start playing is the simple concept of like dice checks, you know, so you roll, you roll a d20 and maybe like an extra die based on your skill. So it could be a d4 or a d6 or d8 or d10. Um, and, uh, and you see if you got above a number or below a number and then things happen. Uh, and, and what's nice is that, again, anytime anything happens, most of the time you just enter a code into the app and immediately voiceover narration, you know, kind of livens the whole thing up. It, it's, it's zingy, it's funny. One of my favorite bits is that whenever a player character is supposed to be speaking you, right, the, the way the voice actor plays it is like you're a total idiot. <laughs> like It sounds like a complete buffoon, like this sort of incredulous high slightly higher pitched voice like i don't know what's gonna happen you know uh -huh. yeah, yeah. yeah it is a bit like yeah that. that's funny yeah you're you're almost always the stupidest person around because it's like we've been thrown together we've no idea what we're doing really uh like one of the narrations said finally a quest <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah okay it, it is very tongue-in-cheek uh even with the voice acting but it's very good uh it's it's much better than having a book full of text, I think, and having to struggle through it if, if that's something you struggle with. Mm. Uh, the other thing I like is is the creative character roles, again, because 
it sets up the game and what it's going to feel like from the very beginning. And I think that's really nice. So uh, you, you basically have two character sheets that sort of come together. One part of it is like sort of your who species. you are, your species. And the other one is your job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so <laughs> this is where it went funny. Like, so the species were things like a goblin or a dog person, which looks like a Labrador, right? And then, But with clothes on. Yes, of course. And and uh, a stick with a giant dog biscuit that makes it look like a hammer. Because <laughs> that's what dogs would have. Yeah, of course, naturally. I mean, why would they waste their dog biscuits though, on like a weapon? Well, because if, if you've seen a dog biscuit, they're tough as nails, right? You you put that yeah. on a stick, you're going to whack someone, they're to... not going to get up. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. But it'd be like putting a cake on a weapon. Yeah, but cake, you can't wax. A I mean, rock you can... bun. What about a rock bun? Fruitcake. Yeah. Well, no, they're soft. No, it's not. Well, it depends how you cook they're it. They're dense <laughs> and disgusting. I don't like fruitcake. No. I love a fruitcake. Um, and then you pick a profession <laughs> and it's things like fryer. So that's already comedic because you think, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to be like some sort of a monk type person. No, they, they mean you fry, fry, yeah, huh? yeah, you fry things religiously. Yeah. Um, and so there's that and or or there's other professions like uh divorcee <laughs> and you you do what you want with that that's your job apparently or pi pi yeah, yeah. spells spell sword which yeah. is like a D class right yeah. but what they actually mean is spells word yeah you're a word yeah. speller yeah <laughs> magical word speller yeah yeah it's, so it's very silly so that's what you can expect from it uh i enjoyed my way throughout i have one reservation um so th- as natch in these kind of things the last confrontation is some sort of a boss fight mm-hmm. right and this is where it becomes very mechanical and dice rolly. And there are little puzzly elements like, oh, maybe we should do this. And you know that moment in D&D where like the GM creates this like grandiose battle, right? You know, there's a dragon or something and you're in some sort of a massive castle hall or something, right? Yeah things are flying about or some sort of cataclysm is coming down from the sky things are happening everywhere right and one player gets really clever and says oh can i just do this and then that will end the fight you know and then the gm goes i don't know try it roll the dice it doesn't feel like there's any tangible big moment like that where players can get creative right and Mm. i know it's hard to engineer that you know in a board game right but but there are creative ways where you can over like overcome a big fight with smarts rather than just chucking dice right and i think there's a little bit of that there there are kind of things you can figure out to mitigate the situation but it still leans very heavily into that dice chucking aspect and and the game never relied on like the entire you know time leading up to this boss fight it never relies on that ethos of like let's roll a lot of dice but i think i think i i I know what you're saying and i i agree with you it it did fall a bit flat and it did feel a little bit strung out a little bit Mm -hmm. lengthened at the end it was like okay let's can we get on with this can we finish this now i yeah. mean th- th- well that's the other thing it, it was really long 
I, I didn't expect it to be as long as it was. Mm-hmm. Um, it says 90 minutes on the box. It didn't feel like it. Was it 90 like minutes it. per player? <laughs> um, it, no, it's not it, that bad, but no. yeah, it was... <laughs> it took some time. I uh, think it's three hours. But again, we were playing in a very relaxed atmosphere. This is true. There were beers, there this was food, true. you know. Uh, this is true. But um, no, my, my actual point was that you know when you have these restrictions like you said it's it's almost like a role-playing game pared down mm. uh so it it limits your need to understand all the mechanisms of what a role-playing game is but then it also limits your options and your choices mm-hmm. so the fact that we ended up in this um kind of boss battle and there was only certain solution to to kill this boss i think is just a product of that, of the fact that there is a lot of restriction, which is good mm. because it guides you. Mm. Um, but then it does fall a little bit flat at the end, particularly if you're used to playing more open role-playing games. Mm. I don't know. I wish there was more some sort of a kind of a reliance on things you found throughout the play session. And maybe we just didn't find it. Maybe they do exist. Maybe. Uh, but... I just want, I don't know, I wanted more connectivity and more like it felt like an actual challenge rather than like a dice chucking, you know, yes. marathon. Having to get the right result on the dice. Yeah, like, I think, over yeah, and over it, and over. When it always comes down to that, it becomes, I don't want to say tedious, it wasn't tedious, that's not true. We were still having a, a nice time, mm. but it becomes repetitive. Yeah, it, it really does, yeah. I, I, and so this is kind of a minor gripe, I, because I enjoyed my time overall. I think I, I think it's quite vibrant, it's silly, it's light. It's one of those games that you can just kind of drop on the table and say, let's play, we'll learn how to play as we go along. And I wouldn't normally do that with board games, but I did it with this one, and we had someone at the table who was almost new to board games uh and they were fine they they didn't have any issue no. you know just kind of getting into it and playing it because the general sort of humor was kind of evident and the style that it was going for and 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 the rules you can kind of build on them as you go along as long as you understand what rolling a die is and getting a certain result you can play this game and because it's cooperative as well there's there's no worry about having to kind of teach them a bit by bit Mm. so you know if they if they're not sure how to do something to be effective it's it's not hard to say okay well uh you know a d20 is this one a d4 Mm. is this one uh will means this you know or or smarts means this uh this is what you have to do and it doesn't interrupt the game too much Mm. um so no that that is nice did you like the mad libs I like the Mad Libs. When you're creating your character, you you do some Mad Libs and then that fills in your backstory. And uh, they were my favorite part of Forgotten Waters. Yeah. Uh, they are a little bit pared down in this one. Like the- a sh- I think that's a shame. Yeah. I, I really like them too in Forgotten Waters. Yeah, yeah they were it, really good. It was so... I mean, that game is silly anyway. Like mm. Mad Libs is, is silly anyway. But, you know, if you pick slightly the wrong kind of thing that it wants you to go for... Uh, you would end up with something even funnier than intended. Intended, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's good. Slip and slide. <laughs> you want? No one will know what that means. No, no one will know no, what that means. But you do. I do. Uh, Elaine, do you think, uh, with its subversive humor, this game is appropriate for younger audiences? From what we've seen of it so far, yes. There's not any bad language in it. There's not any. Um, 
there's not real violence in it. Um, mm. But I don't I don't know because we we have only played one full campaign. Yeah. So I don't know. I I wouldn't want to say. Oh yeah, go I ahead. Thought at one point it was it asked us if we were okay with swearing and we yes, could say did. yes or no. Yeah, it did. Yeah, and I thought that was like a clever way of handling it. Um, so did it I do don't swears. Huh? Did it do swears? I think it later started doing swears, yeah. Okay, but nothing major. No. Uh, so, I don't know. I'd be a little cautious and maybe, you know, research more. But rules-wise, I think it's appropriate for younger audiences because it's not particularly complicated. And the whole kind of, like, vibrant, silly character sheets and the tone of it is very suitable, you know? You mean, like, young teenagers? Yeah, young teenagers, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Not, like, four-year-olds. No, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, I... I know a lot of parents who listen to the, I know that there are a lot of parents who listen to our podcast who are always on the lookout for a game to play with their kids right mm. and uh, I think this could be suitable De definitely some research into the swearing aspect of it but otherwise yeah I mean it's it can be violent but like cartoon like very strictly cartoon like violent Coyote, Roadrunner type yeah violence yeah yeah exactly so if you think you're okay with that it should be fine before we move on to our interview with Kieran Gillen uh, Greg has emailed in regarding cards potentially being non-functional if they're dinged up do you remember we spoke about that mm -hmm. in the last episode they say just a quick note that the discussion on wear and tear in the last podcast reminded me of Aliman's Tarot, a deliberately mismatched tarot deck I spotted on Kickstarter recently, specifically because one of the higher level rewards has a copy of the deck which has been annotated, marked on, stained, maybe burnt, and definitely written on to make it unique and thoroughly worn. Quite a difference from the usual deluxe edition or sleeving cards to keep them pristine. That's kind of amazing. We've come full circle to... Where they pre-hole your denim jeans, uh, yeah, right? right? Yeah, that's that's what I thought of as well. Like comparing it to to mm. pre-worn jeans. Uh, you, I don't know what I think about that. Like, I, I guess you can just sleeve cards. I d yeah, that I, I I I like that maybe in theory, but in practice, it's like, um, you know, oh, we'll we'll make your deck look aged for you, but you haven't. Like the, the whole appeal of an aged look is, is that, that you've used it over and over and over again, exactly, right? Or yeah. someone has. Yeah. Or does it even matter? Because, you know, I'll, I'll buy jeans with a hole in them, a pre-hole jean. Would you? Yeah, I guess. Because you do. I know. No. Have you no, never? No, I no. accidentally bought some with a hole in because right, they okay. fell apart within a week uh, <laughs> because they were a used pair of jeans. Uh, they didn't come with a hole, but within a week they did have a hole. Yeah. No, I don't know. Why would I do that? I don't know. But like, does it matter? I don't know. I, I, look, let's all agree that that some scuffed cards in some wear and tear can be a nice, good thing. It shows that your game has been loved. My copy of Schadenfreude is already scuffed. This is true. This, yeah. this has happened. I just got it. We just started playing it, started enjoying it. And I thought, oh, I should have sleeved it. And then I remembered. You I remember th yeah, this, this, you know, thing, yeah. yeah, I was like, no, it's okay. It's fine that it's scuffed. I'm enjoying it. It's good. I, I, everyone join the scuffed revolution <laughs> with me now. Hands up in the air. So that you can count cards. No more so sleeves. So you know what the cards no are. No more sleeves. Before someone plays them. I agree that so in some games it's really important. In you might as well play Hanabi at that point. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah. 
in some games, it's really important. It does. I, I recognize that there are games where it will just sort of ruin the game. If you can tell that this card is this specific thing, then it's like, ah, okay, the game stops functioning. And I can get behind that, right? But I think we worry about it too much. And now the bit that you've all actually tuned in for, not me and Efka rabbiting on, it's the interview with Kieran Gillen. I would like to preface this interview mm. with a couple of things. First of all, I know that some of you uh, employ the practice that I don't condone, but I do abide by, of listening to podcasts at a higher speed than intended. Now, if you are doing that, I recommend that for this particular segment, you turn this function off, because Kieran is a very fast speaker. Uh, the other thing I'd like to say is that this discussion centers a lot around a role-playing game that Kieran designed called Die. Now, the premise of the role-playing game is that you are playing real-world human beings, normal beings who get together to play a role-playing game. It just happens that this particular sinister role-playing game ports you over into a metafictional world called Die, where the rules of the game govern pretty much how that world functions. So it becomes very literary role play, if that makes sense. Uh, I wanted to preface that because we just sort of straight up jump into it at some point down the line. Uh, but, uh, but I also wanted uh, to talk to Kieran about Die because Die uh, circles around a lot of things that uh, I am particularly interested in, you know, uh, the sort of you know, metafictionality of games and, and how they're sometimes more real than we give them credit for. Uh, and so a lot of this discussion will center around that, but also just some general uh, Kieran Gillen gaming interests uh, as we go along. Delighted to welcome to the show Karen Gillen. Some of you will remember Karen as a video game journalist. Most of you will recognize him as a comic book author responsible for The Wicked and Divine, Phonogram, Die, many Marvel titles, including some great X-Men runs. Also, Star Wars, Darth Vader run, Doctor Afro. Kieran, you wrote so many things. But today, we're going to pivot a little bit and talk about tabletop, role-playing games, board games. We'll talk cardboard. Um, so I asked this question to every guest because i think it's just a fun thing to find out uh but what what was kieran's you know small kieran's young kieran's earliest memorable game experience what was the the moment where you're like oh games cool i'm old enough to sort of you know people write about their formative games mm -hmm. i was old enough to be as writing autobiographically about games to be cool and new. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, that if anyone, I've written about games, uh, the games that got me in so many times. I just did Simon Parkin's podcast recently, and I deliberately chose five not good games, as in five games which want, I wanted to be better, but I was kind of obsessed with anyway, just because I've done talks about that so often. However, my, my first origin story game, I, I always think, is The Hobbit. The um, Melbourne House uh, text adventure Hobbit game, which dates me significantly, um, and I, my family weren't exactly technophobic, but they weren't ever really ahead of the curve or anything. So my best mate Dave Highland, we were walking to the swimming bath and back every like week as part of school, and he always telling about this game, The Hobbit, and what was happening in it. So he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we found these trolls. I've got to wait till dawn. And they came, yeah. Oh, man, I've got this bit of the spiders. And, the, you know, they come down for the scene. And no idea. Oh, no, I've locked in the... Um, I keep on getting drunk with Gandalf and all this, you know, whatever. And I'm like, it sounds like, oh, this is astounding. So, like, obviously when you're five or six, a week is forever. Yeah. Um, and it, so in a few weeks' time, I eventually go to David's house. 
and he his brother's spectrum as it was then and he loads it up and he shows it to me and i sort of turn to him in horror and say you never told me it was just text uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was one of those kind of like if you want to sum up my relationship with the, the medium in fact full stop the potential versus actuality is very much there but it's stuff like um i mean a, a gauntlet was really important to me as a 10 year old uh kung fu master usually important to me as like a slightly younger gamer um god there's a lot of games like there was definitely a, i remember like playing kung fu master in the in the like the local working men's club because that's kind of i'm like a working class sort of background so mm. there's this one club there and i remember actually playing it quite obsessively and one of the older kids said had no idea why, why did he throw your money into that no money you know um money doesn't come out the point being, <laughs> right. it's not a, it's not a gambling machine and what yeah. I, what i thought what i couldn't quite express then is like i just didn't understand him it's like don't you understand pleasure comes out and that's kind of <laughs> like you know that says a lot about what i felt about games as well but like uh yeah but if you, you go to but like, you remember seeing like D, like seeing D on the television you know, yeah it, that, that tiny opening of et everyone always forgets they play D at the start of it at et you know what i mean like i'm just seeing mm. that thing huh or fighting fantasy books or like or the um I was obsessed by the Lone Wolf book, adventure books, you know what I mean? Yes. This weird kind of... It was harder to do games then, in that kind of... like I had to write off the games workshop to get the big A4... Sorry, the A3 sheets and stuff. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's... Hard. I don't think it's a good thing, <laughs> but I like, as a kind of... You're aware you had to sort of dig to get the weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what about board games? We're just sort of, like, in the periphery because all this, like, um, you know uh D and 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 fighting fantasy stuff was uh you know i i imagine that's cap captivating you know your imagination uh where board games always is something that's like um you know in the background and then you've discovered them later or where they're always present they were always present to some degree i mean like i must say as a kid as when i got into games journalism when i was like that, I, my first work was when i was 19 but when i started really theorizing around as was 21 i used to think that video games were something fundamentally different from other forms of gaming Mm. I used to think it was kind of um, this, the microchip does something. The idea the microchip takes stuff out of people's hands and yada, 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 yada. And through that metaphor, I made, I turned things, I don't know, like um, Dance Dance Revolution to not video games, mm. you know, in my in my theory. Of course, that theory is nonsense. I'm very much now in the position as, oh, no, no, then all games are fundamentally the same thing. Like, they're, they're, lots of things change around the edge of it, edges, but they're all wrestling with something, the question of what ludic nature is, yada, yada, yada. Um so yeah, I was always playing some board games, and sometimes they were just terrible board games. Like we played um, Escape from the Valley of the Dinosaurs so much. We played Crossbows and Catapults, which of course just re-kickstarted. I did back because I couldn't help myself. I was that guy, um, you know. So all those sort of family games we played. But like the one thing about Games Workshop back then, they were all as well as doing their own games. They were also distributing other people's games. Mm-hmm. Like so, there was a, there was some exposure to other stuff through there. Um, a little bit later, I was playing like the American hobby game stuff. I didn't really, um, Eurogames weren't really on the scene until like well into the 90s when I, you know, I, I played Settlers when it broke in America a bit. You know what I mean? So it was in mm. the mix there. As a teenager, my, okay, I can literally, various, your readers will be throwing bricks in my head. So we played a lot of Talisman. <laughs> uh, and I swear, Talisman is much, the problem with Talisman, it's a game that goes on as long as it, it takes someone's deciding to win to win. It's mm. not, you know, you can always win like three hours before anyone tries to. Um, but like Steve Jackson games, stuff like Illuminati, I really liked as a teenager. Obviously not now, but like uh, there's something really compelling there. We played a lot of um, Little Green Men from Outer Space, another Steve Jackson's game we really liked. That's a, have you played that one? No, not familiar. I tell you what, it's just it's a Star Trek game, basically. So you're all Star Trek crew, all aliens, and the blobs from space. 
And so the blobs appear and you've got to destroy the blobs. The interesting mechanic is all the different objects on the ship are weapons. And every time you use a weapon on Alien, you draw a chit, discovering what the weapon does. Right. And some of them are like, you know, some of them are different levels of murderous and some of them are like oh no they explode and become more more so you basically the whole game is you trying or one side trying the guns or kitchen stuff or like a fire extinguisher uh-huh, uh-huh. to see what what actually works and what doesn't work. and of course that means it's completely unbalanced uh, but that's the fun of it you have no idea what the hell's gonna happen um it's a playground right yeah exactly and that was kind of one of those things like even then i understood that it wasn't for me that wasn't obviously i like balanced games i play chess and whatever but like the the sheer joy and chaos of the the setup of that that was also quite appealing. What about now? Like if if we took like the last five years, is there is there a a, a game? I, I guess I'm leaning more like board games and tabletop games. Is was there um something that left a real indelible memory in terms of a game session that happened? And what was that game for this audience? You're gonna throw, yet again throw bricks. The last five years have been incredibly bad for board games for me. Like mm. I played a lot of board games from about 2010 to like 2016, 17. And then I drifted out and I can almost entirely play role-playing games now. Um, and it's partially because I'm a new parent. It's partially because of COVID. It's, mm-hmm. um, but the ability to get people together to play a board game was so much lower down the list. So it's just other things got prioritized. So I'm out the loop to an enormous degree. However, if I was going about the last five years, one game I really did sort of dig into um, was the... Uh, the Lord of the Rings collectible card game. Mm. The not collectible, so the living card game. And during COVID, I had about six months I was playing that by myself. Like the proper full on, oh, I'm going to play decks and, you know, and that. And it really did something. I, I'm an enormous Lord of the Rings fan. I mentioned The Hobbit already earlier. Mm. But like that kind of losing myself in this little, how can I build these structures? You know, how can I make these little engines? And in a time of, um, you know, obviously complete chaos we all went through. Like it was a really useful sort of, um, here is a, Here's a thing that vaguely stabilizes. Here's a structural element. Here's some somewhere I can have control. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the main thing. Actually, I was going to count. Like, I, I still play Warhammery board gamey, um, not you know, miniature stuff, but they don't really count. <laughs> you know, I would say it's like if Warhammer was a good game, like we wouldn't spend all the time painting the miniatures. You know, that's the, it, it. Can't just be about the game. It's got to be. About, you know what I mean? It's got yeah, to be about yeah. something more than the. It's got to be about the larger experience, the the miniatures and the chaos and the storytelling. Because it's, you know, because if mm. it's just a, it's, it, the game could never be good enough to justify the amount of time it takes. When we were talking to Adrian Tchaikovsky, you know, I, I did ask him, do you play, uh, you know, uh, miniature war games as well? Because I noticed you paint and he said, no, I just paint. I just like the painting. It's it's nice and therapeutic, right? Uh, and it's weird. Uh, you know, solo games have had a real re, sort of reemergence, I guess, but also like an emergence. Uh, because they were always there in the background, but but we're now talking about them in a much more kind of like, oh yeah, solo board games, that's a thing, right? Um, and it feels almost like COVID gave us permission to enjoy that and, and be like, hey, yeah, no, this is something cool and you can do that and it is structured and it is kind of like, you know, you, you almost get a different experience out of it than, than playing socially. I think you're probably right. I mean, like, I mentioned games, work- I mean, one of the Games Workshop games, but I did play a lot when I was a kid, was Chainsaw Warrior. And Chainsaw Warrior was a solo board game back in the mid '80s, uh, with amazing Brett Ewan's art, I think. Like, and that was deck based, like sort of. It, it was suppose it felt like a proto roguelike made of paper, like <laughs> you know. And it's it's it just different sort. Of, and of course, we talk about journaling RPGs as well. You know, talk mm. about something else. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there. So you wrote a comic book called Die, which shares a setting 
a premise and universe with a role-playing game called Die, which you also wrote. Uh, and I think that makes you one of the few people who wrote fiction centered around tabletop uh, games. What made you want to do that? And can you tell me a bit more about what it was like to summon that? I'm going to put out the caveat before... Listen, I appear to be image imagining people just throwing stuff at me today. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it's my baby throwing stuff at me. The question of fiction and gaming is really interesting in terms of what people have done it. And obviously, you got you got the fairly big stuff like I don't know, Ready Player One or whatever. But if you if you dig down deeper, you've got the litter RPG scene, I believe it's called. Uh, and I haven't read any of that. But they're basically, as far as I understand it, a genre of fiction which is based around pretending, using the conventions of RPGs as literal things in the fiction. Mm. If that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So, if it was like characters gain levels, you know, I know. Okay, I'm saying that I've never read any, so I don't really know. Because it's that, for me, that sounds terrible. You know, the idea of just taking it as a as a natural thing, unless you're going to be, unless you were going to make it a satire, that doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. Um, however, like from Die, I was, um, I did a book called Phonogram, which was about my relationship with pop music. It was about the idea of like what music, how music made me better and how music made me worse and how, what sorts of people lose themselves in music. And in some ways, Die was me doing that about my love of gaming and tabletop and whatever else. So it's about like, it came from me thinking, did I fall into a fantasy world at the age of 15 and, you know, not come out? How much has me being, how much has the amount I have loved this stuff hurt me and the people around me? And of course, that's the, that's just typical of me because, you know, I'm always into the downside as well as the upside. I die if you read it. It's also about the, the transcendence people get from games. Um, and that's where it kind of comes from as a thing. I said, OK, I haven't written seriously about games in a while. Like when, when Die came around, like obviously I had 15 years of writing about it before. But like I want to do something that digs into why people play, especially specifically RPGs. And of course, being me, Die also became like this history of the RPG. So the whole story is, as well as about the characters, these broken people thrown into a fantasy world. It's also about um, how did RPGs come into being? Like, and it's a it's weird, like Lovecraftian conspiracy story about um, basically the if you read Playing at the World, it kind of takes the Playing at the World's threefold model, which is like the Brontes uh, shared paracosm because the Brontes played RPGs basically. You've got the uh, Prussian, sorry, the Prussian war games, the Kriegspiel, and you've got basically the fiction of um, of Tolkien. You know, in terms of like this this weird outsider art guy who's also an Oxford dog. So let's kind of, and we trace these things through and see where they lead. Um, I've completely forgot what the question is, mate. Why did I do it? Yeah, why did you do it? You know? It's one of the things that I think doing doing stuff only you would do is a good idea as a creative. And I'm not, I don't mean that in an egotistical way. I mean, because obviously other people could write stuff about this specific. But like that idea of trying to do this piece of fiction that's also a piece of criticism and also satire. Um, and also doing it as an RPG at the same time, because that's the weird. That's the really weird thing about Die, because people often asks me, um, like, is it not, is it a tie in RPG or is it you know? Mm. And it, for a long time, I had no idea. I thought, what's the dog? What's the tail? And I um, eventually the dog ate its own tail and became a dog Ouroboros. Uh, and I sort of now think of Die as um, two ways of looking at the same thing. You know, like Die exists in a realm outside our imagination, and the the comic will explain certain things. And the game will explain certain other things. And by holding these two contradictory ideas in your head at the same time, you'll get a better picture. Um, at least that's how I tell my accountant and therefore justify my RPG spending. A couple of episodes ago, uh, uh, Elaine, who's my co-host and my wife, she she asked me, does anyone write board game fan fiction? You know, And my like almost instant reply was, 
Um, well, why would you? That sounds terribly naff, you know, <laughs> like and, and, and a writer, a, a re, um, listener wrote in saying, well, actually, there's this thing called uh, a diary of a settler of Catan. And it's just like these little like entries of every day, you know, like day 17, you know, I found some wood, gonna go find someone to trade it for sheep or something like that, you know. When I when I read Die, the comic book, it, I had a real sense of, you know, you almost kind of inhabiting these conventions that that we kind of assume and take for granted at a table, uh, but but they become sort of real. What was it like to transpire them as real? If I have an ability, it's to take things too seriously. And I mean, like, like, and obviously, I hope that people are aware when I'm talking about myself. I'm aware how ridiculous I am. That's, I think, that's my saving grace. Uh, I would be unbearable if I wasn't aware of what a complete fool I was. But the idea of okay, let's just take it seriously for a second, because you know, there's been quite a few. I said games about you know comics about games or comics about video games but the idea of no let's really kind of embrace all the tropes and take them very seriously and i don't just i just think the idea of that because that's what we call in comics a deconstructionary tendency the uh I mean watchman is the idea let's take superhero comics seriously and mm-hmm. watchman follows through the implications of that uh, and i'm kind of doing that to rpgs and die Do you, you know we name track watchman in episode one and that's the clear influence in terms of okay let's take um you know those Okay, just off the like the Godbinders in Die, which is basically our riff on the clerics, and Godbinders um, is born of the real weird realization. Like in D anD D, it's like, is it weird that your God will heal heal you for D eight wounds or something? So <laughs> like, imagine like Jesus, like, okay, I can heal you, but only a little bit. You'll have to come back tomorrow after I've had a little sleep to heal the rest. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. like ludicrous. Um, but that's and Godbinders kind of turn that into a much more transactional relationship with God in that way. Um, and it's worth stressing, like a lot of RPGs have played this game anyway. Because one, when I say deconstructionary, what you really mean? What's a fun twist? What's an interesting way to think about this? And in some ways, I think that's what fiction. In fact, for me, also really good. Quite often, good game design, not always, but quite often, gives you a different way of seeing things. Like I'm, um, I'm about to run a game next week of uh, Grant Grant Howitt, the Roman Rook and Decker designer and owner and or co-owner rather. Um, are called Royal Blood. And Royal Blood is a game where you play the face cards in the tarot deck, uh, and you're uh, you're in a heist to rip off the power and s- supplant the existence of one of the major tarot. You know, as in like you know, uh, and they immediately hear that. Of course, because obviously the minor arcana hate the major arcana. Those major arcana real bastards. You know, <laughs> uh, like and it's, that's kind of that moment of like it's a that's a wonderful magical click, and that's what I think fiction does, and that's what I think kind of what die tries to do in terms of hey, think about this. Yeah, and it's a it's a spark of joy, and it's what I love in my fiction. There's so much of being a writer, in fact, I think so much of being anything. It's about okay, what excites you, and hoping other people share that level of like, oh my god, look at this. In your author's note uh, of the die role playing game, uh, you say you're trying to make a game that answers the question, why do we play games? And I realize fully that every person is probably going to have a different answer to that but ha- have you found yours through writing that or or are you still looking in some ways die with the actual comic was a kind of pretty good i mean i was talking about the characters like at the end like ash makes a speech about what games are for um and i don't want to spoil it for the leaders who haven't and in some ways that's quite close to it um and i think the kind of the, the weird the, the line that kind of go, runs all the way through die is it's all for you it's all for you and that's the weird kind of um, monkey's paw promise of RPGs and games. And the idea of like, you know, it is all for you. And that's kind of for better or worse. 
And that, what does it tell you? That you have chosen this, what does this say? Um, and there's a line of, especially RPGs, there's a line I had Ash say towards the end, like the the uh, the Apocalypse Key, it's not Apocalypse Keys, the Apocalypse World designers, they had the insight that games were a conversation. You know, and the way their games, as in one player says this, then they build up the conversation. And of course, it's like, you should probably listen to what the game is telling you and vice versa. You know, like, why, why are you saying this? I mean, so many people will talk about... Um, how many coming out stories have involved an RPG? Or, you know, how many, how, you know, how, these our fantasies are important because they're a magic circle where it's safe to approach things which might be too scary to approach other ways. Um, and this is like, you know, I wrote about games for 15 years, like pretty intensely. Um, and I think the flexibility is quite important. Like, so why do people read books? Like, I couldn't give a single answer to that and I would distrust any single answer. But what do I think the game does is, since you just so to explain briefly to your listeners the game, like it's a it's a, a meta RPG basically. You gather around, you make up messed up, broken human beings from the real world. Then you sit down, pretend to make up characters for an RPG, and then you're the the messed up people you you've made up get dragged into the fantasy world and probably take the physical form of the characters they've made. Um, you know, and then they decide whether or not to go home or not, and the fantasy world is full of their traumas thrown back at them. It's basically psychogeography and. Uh, therapy externalized and fight scenes against orcs probably too um but the key thing about it is um you you know if you're basically asking because the persona generation section basically answers the questions in terms of okay you know what makes you sad or like why, why is your life not turned out right or whatever the personas and you always probably mind yourself slightly you know like mm. it's, it's, but it's also safely not you so the more the game goes on, and especially because it always ends with uh, genuinely the players having a debate which may break into a fight of whether the game should continue or stop, you're answering the question of, does this character, this persona you've made up, want fantasy more than reality or vice versa, and what they what are they willing to do to get it? And in some ways, that may that's going to echo you a little. So it's a safe way to think about parts of yourself. And that's like, that's the sting in die. Because it's like, it's really good fun. It, despite the... um. The, the potential of how I've described here in terms of it being a big question game. In reality, it's it's really entertaining and most importantly, it's emotional. Because it's like, when you start to the multiple levels, it sounds really cold. You know what I mean, man? It's like... Yeah. Yeah, but like in actual play, it's incredibly direct because it's like, I don't know what an elf feels like. I don't know what an orc feels like. But I do know what like a sad middle-aged guy might feel like or like a teenager who's confused about... You know, I know real people are really easy to role-play because <laughs> mm-hmm. that we're surrounded by them. <laughs> You know, and that's what makes it really human, I think, and what most excites me about it. I I think it's also terrifying. You know, like mm. when when I read Die the comic book, I was like, you know, I think part of the emotional journey you undergo as a reader is like, oh, okay, right? You know, like I I, I thought it was gonna be Jumanji, and then suddenly this is actually terrifying. But you're not experiencing that. You can relate to them, right? Because I think you know the 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 characters are constructed in that way where like. They're not just like archetypes in a role playing game. They're sort of archetypes of people as well, mm. and you can find relatability in one of them at least, uh, if not more. But but then you're presented with this idea in the role playing game. Now you do it, right? Like now you you be the person that goes through that. That that's scary, right? Yeah, yeah. but like the, the safety is the uh, is the condom essentially. It's the it's the, it's the um it's the contraceptive between you and the game. As in, oh, it's not you. It's a character you've made up. Yes, it may bear similarities to you, but it's not you. So that makes it a little safer. Um, I think, though, like, part of what one of the reasons I did die was um, 
to show how it was done. Like I, I think there's a quote from Alex Roberts, which I put in the interview I did in the back of one of the issues. Alex Roberts, the amazing designer for the Queen, which is for the Queen as a side point. It's one of the, the RPGs in the last five years, which feels like um, almost like a gateway to board gamers because it has the tropes of a board game. It, it's mm. about cards passing around. It's like I, if, I recommend it strongly. It plays like in an hour. It's an incredibly great game. But she said something like, "Society tends to make um, treat creatives like these these godheads or whatever." I stress, I'm paraphrasing her, she doesn't say this. <laughs> like, we treat these creators as this distant thing, creativity is something that's done to us, something we're an audience for. And what an RPG does, and games more generally, sort of, um, no, like, we creativity is infinite. We can sit down with a few mechanics and a few guidelines, and at the end of the evening, we'll have made a world together. Um, and that's kind of what I want to do with Die, in terms of democratise how Die is done. As in, Die is, you know... I. Making messed up people. I don't just like throw that open to people. I explicitly, these are the way, ask these questions to the players. By answering them, you'll get a group of interesting people, by which I mean characters you can do a story with. Then they do a series of rituals that takes, you know, takes the personas into the game. And then the whole kind of going in the adventure bit. You know, we've cooked up ways to, okay, you, you all that stuff you did earlier, with those persona, those, those flaws, this is how you're going to turn those flaws into story. You know, this is how you're going to turn the, some of these fear of their parents into an encounter with a dragon or whatever you know mm. and like and then at the end this is how we'll get into climax because die also somewhat unusually has a set climax as in the players all get together and decide to go home or not and there's a vote basically and dead people don't get any you know votes therefore it turns the um game into the central western drama idea is what does someone want and what were they willing to do to get it that's what most western drama is about um and that's the game, you know what I mean? Like, so structurally, I took Die and analysed it down to the, the bare basics and then built it up into a game. So you can absolutely, pers- it will personalise enormously depending the people you make up, but it's still going to hold together as a story that works like Die. Um, I mean, there's a kind of, I mean, this, is, this is the messed up thing about it. Like, um, I chanted like a, uh, Amal, who did a, this amazing writer, she wrote um, How to Lose the Time War which is mm. a, an amazing, amazing novella. I strongly recommend it. And we talk about, like, she's also gone into, like, indie RPG design and play. And it's some like, it's no longer enough to be able to actually need to write the story. I have to be able to write something that allows somebody else to create the story unless I have, unless I ha- that implies I haven't understood it. You know, by breaking down die and explaining how die is done means I now understand die much better. In other words, it's like being a critic. For me, like, you can only really understand the piece of work until, until you, you can break it down to the component rules and then allow it to be recreated. That's where I am at the moment, anyway. Where can people find more about Die? Where, where, where can they discover Die? And where can they discover more of what you do? Well, people can... Uh, Kieran Gillen, that's my name. K-I-E-R-O-N-G-I-L-L-E-N. Basically everywhere. I'm, on, I'm abstractly on Twitter, though I'm only just posting updates for stuff. I'm not actually on Twitter. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm on Blue Sky a bit more. The best place to get me is my newsletter. I've got a button-down newsletter. So you have Kieran Gillen newsletter, you'll find it. You may find the Substack first. There's a link to the actual real newsletter from there. And I basically every like week or two, I'll download what's going on, like what I've released comic-wise, what I've released games-wise, what's undergoing. There's a Die Discord. Um, you should actually go to die, uh, die-rpg.com. If not that, enter Die RPG, Rowan Rook and Deckard. It's, it's able to buy there. Rowan Rook and Deckard, I've got it all. It's available from game shops, etc. There's a Discord for people to join and chat about the game. Um, and we're at work on the first expansion for Die, which is basically um, a, se- a series of adventures of different ways to play the game. Uh, and mine's like a hex crawl about a group of people who are all hung up over their various hexes. It, uh, so um, 
emotional and messy as per usual. But yeah, and uh, I'm working on a few other small games myself, uh, just for fun of it. Uh, and we'll put all of those links in the description. Kieran, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this interview, we we have a lot of great interviews that we've recorded in previous episodes with Andrew Navarro, Paul Dean, Jesse Genders, OEB, Adrian Tchaikovsky, uh, and many more coming in the future. Our last game features sheep to replace previous cows. Great Western Trail, New Zealand, comes from publisher Eggert Spiel by designer Alexander Pfister with art by Chris Williams. Oh, where to begin? Where to begin? What's Great Western Trail? Oh, God. Great Western Trail is one of my favourite Euro games. Uh, it's a big, meaty, heavy strategy game uh, that employs deck building as a mechanism and also travelling around in a circle, stopping at various locations, doing actions that will give you resources or make you spend resources to get various bonuses. Uh, then you make cow deliveries, which are the cards in your hand. Uh, so you're trying to sculpt this perfect hand as you deliver this set of cows. Uh, and then <laughs> it, based on how good that is, you'll get money and points. And then the cycle will continue and you will tear your hair out trying to pass all the decisions and multitudinous uh diverging strategies oh it's it's great i love it I, I really love great western trail it is genuinely one of my favorite games uh this is a frequel uh Ooh. yeah is that a word Three. well okay so here is the genealogy of great western trail mm. uh so there was great western trail mm -hmm. there was great western trail rails to the north which is the expansion to great western trail then there was great western trail second edition Ooh. uh oh sorry no in between that that was the poker table mini promo let's not forget that uh and there's some other promos as well uh then there was the great western trail second edition then there was the great Tr western trail rails to the north expansion second edition and now uh there was great western trail argentina which was a standalone great western trail game and this is great western trail new zealand another standalone great western trail game so the third big great western trail yeah and i think we've reached the end now of the great western <laughs> trails until they announce something else but you know there's nothing coming anymore in the foreseeable future i mean it doesn't make sense the name doesn't make sense anymore it's like the carphone warehouse you know? yeah. it doesn't quite make sense any longer yeah so um here here's my sort of brief summary of of everything that's happened so far great western trail great rails to the north expansion great for people who love great western trail second edition great same with the expansion you know it's all good you know if you, if you never played great western trail but you think you would enjoy a medium to heavyweight euro game with a little bit of luck a little bit of luck but also a lot of various diverging strategies you know, Great Western Trail is pretty good. That's my opinion. Luck in the sense of card draws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luck in the sense of card draws. Because the deck building element always provides a little bit of variance, you mm -hmm. know. So so it has a little bit of zing to it, right? Um, Great Western Trail Argentina, we've reviewed in a previous episode okay. of this podcast. You can check that out. Um, and also Great Western Trail 2nd Edition, we've reviewed in the Legacy episode somewhere. Uh, not that far down the list, so you can find our discussion on that um we didn't love great western trail argentina and we kind of didn't even see the point of it really honestly no uh it was it was a weird departure that felt heavier and clunkier than the original uh introducing some 
you know, kind of quality of life adjustments to people who play this game. A lo- I mean, a lot mm. yeah, more than us as someone who's who likes it enthusiastically. Um, you know, someone who is, you know, plays it all the time. I think we concluded it was something for the fans. Yeah, but something for the fans. Again, I think it's something for a small percentage of the fans. Because not, I think most people who are fans of this game, you know, they, let's face it, people play a board game 5, 10, 20 times at most. I don't think Argentina was for someone like that. I think it was for someone who played a hundred games of Maybe, Great Western yeah, Trail. Yeah, that's what we, we concluded. Um, and how do you feel that New Zealand fits into this? Weirdly. Um, so I'm going to say straight up, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. I think it's pretty good. Would I recommend it? Probably no. Which is a weird space to be in. I mean, you'll find out by the end of this, I guess, segment, you know, whether it's for you or not. But it's not like a, it's not like a, you know, recommendation with bells on it. It's It's maybe like a cautious recommendation. Certainly, first of all, I'll say, if you've never played this, do not get Great Western Trail New Zealand. There is just no reason for you to do this. This is once again for the fans. But I think this time maybe it is for the fans like us who have played it 5 to 10 to 20 times rather than 100 Mm. times. Although there's probably something for those as well. Mm. I really struggled with this game. Uh, I I understand what you're saying. Like it, It is for someone who's played Great Western Trail a lot. But I don't know that the sort of base mechanisms that are the same as Great Western Trail are different enough to make this feel like a different game. It's all the add-on stuff that that makes this feel like a new game mm. or, or like a, a sequel game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it comes back to that, that time-old question. Just because you can do something, should you? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, So we have some diverging opinions here emerging. Yeah. You didn't get on with it as much as I did, did you? No. uh, And in fact, when we started playing it, I had to bow out uh, after, what, like an hour into it? Not even that many. Half an hour. Half an hour. My brain could not cope. I've played Great Western Trail. I love Great Western Trail. Um, Like you, you know, it's such a good game. Uh, and every time we play it, I have fun with it. But all the extra things and the 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 colours are very bright on the board. The artwork is very, um, I don't want to say messy. It's not messy. It's but there's bitty. There's the stuff everywhere. There's there's loads of lovely artwork. But my brain just could not cope. My, what my brain wanted was like uh, the the tile to just say what it does, mm. or the cards to just say what they do. I couldn't cope with all the colours and the extra bits. It was just confusing me. And the extra board uh, was just something else that I had to think about that I just wasn't coping very well with. However, however, when we came back to it the next day, because I said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. Uh, when we came back to it the next day, it was a lot better. I, mm. I, I must have, I, you know, I slept better or whatever. Uh, and it was... Yeah, it was fine. It was fine. I don't know that I would play this over the original Great Western Trail if I fancied a game of Great Western Trail, though. And I think that sums up everything pretty well. I think for some people this will be, uh, you know, a cool twist on Great Western Trail. 
and for some people it just won't. Okay, so let's talk about what's happening in this game. Uh, like in the previous games, you are uh, delivering cattle. This time it's not cows, it's sheep. Uh, sheep cattle? Let's say they are. Um, <laughs> uh, and of course not in America, in New Zealand. Uh, although, let's put a pin in that. Um, so... Uh, the sheep are represented by cards that, that you have in your hand, and this is a deck-building game, so you'll be drawing sheep and playing sheep. Uh, oftentimes, you'll be playing sheep as you land on various action spots on the board. So you have this person, they travel around the board in a big circle until they reach Wellington, in which, in, at which point they reset and start at the beginning of the board, and again, they travel through various locations. Now, you don't have to stop at every location. Uh, you skip the ones you don't want, but you have, like, a limit as to how far you can go. And then as the game progresses, players will build their own locations that will do unique things only for them, impeding others with financial penalties. Potentially, yeah. Potentially, yeah. Um, you kind of create more opportunities for yourself to do things, cooler things that are generally available on the board already in like a worse version right so you, uh or maybe you will not build buildings maybe you'll pivot into collecting a lot of different sheep cards and uh you know just kind of maximizing your deck or there's a whole new shipping mechanism where you travel with a boat and build ports and that replaces the rail system in great western trail um it works quite differently although the spirit of it is the oh, same very much similar yeah yeah um, but, and, but can, the, sorry, can I just yeah. so that that is one of the things that I kind of had had the issue with. My brain had the issue with because uh, the the rail system is quite. Once you understand what you need to be doing, it's quite simple to just you know keep trying to do it. Mm. Um, whereas the the system in New Zealand is a lot more over all over the place it's very expanded it's perhaps the my least favorite part of, of the game it is actually all the other things uh that make it more intriguing for me these little changes that are not as evident that kind of puts a twist on the formula the whole expanded shipping system it's it's very voluptuous so <laughs> Um, the, the trick in this game is that you can now shear sheep instead of like just discarding yes. them for various yeah. things. So uh, whenever you reach Wellington, uh, you want to have a card, a, a hand of cards that is composed entirely out of different sheep, right? And, and that was true in previous yeah. games. You wanted different cows. Um, now, in so... And that would determine how much income you get because you add the values on those cards together and uh, also where you can put, put your scoring marker, um, which is this disc you take off that unlocks new abilities for you but also scores you points at the end of the game. Now, that system is it's much more complicated in Great Western Trail New Zealand because now sheep don't just have a scoring value, they have a shear value as well. And there will be spots along the board where you can shear them and get money for their shearing. But you have to discard that card so you won't be taking that to the end. Correct, right? But it also kind of functions in a, in a similar way like delivering the sheep to Wellington. Yes. Because once again, there will be opportunities to put out a disc onto special sheep shearing scoring spaces rather than regular scoring spaces. And, and those are, you know, uh, there's some available on the board, but more reachable via the shipping track. If your ship went into the right places, you could unlock more scoring opportunities for shearing sheep. You don't have to. It's not, it's not a strategy you have to follow. Um, but it, it kind of, 
diversifies the game and asks you more questions. You end up with the two tracks rather than just having the one rail track. You mm. have uh, one kind of track where you're delivering sheep and one where you're delivering wool or yes. you're selling wool uh, that you've just got from shearing the sheep. Mm. But also this um, boat shipping thing unlocks more spots for your regular deliveries or various bonuses. Yeah. Now there's a whole new system of deck building cards, which actually I quite like. So one of the other big changes is uh, that there are now much less opportunities to thin out your deck. Remove mm. decks, you know, remove bad cards from your deck permanently. Uh, you can't do that so much anymore. Your deck just is. balloons, <laughs> right? There are a scan few opportunities, but they're very punitive and uh, much harder to rely on. Punitive? Like, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, so for example... Uh, you have these uh, tokens that let you draw two cards and discard two cards, kind of you know mitigate your luck and and get 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 maybe a better hand just before you deliver, right? So these tokens still exist, but now if you spend two of them, which is a lot, that's drawing four cards, discarding four cards. You know you could change your entire hand basically. Uh, if you discard two of them, you can remove one card from the game forever. And and I'm not sure that through the course of the game that's worth it, you know? I did feel like those those tokens that let you draw one, discard one came up more than yeah. in previous Great Western Trials though. Uh for you maybe. I oh, no. I, I didn't <laughs> get many of them, you know. Oh, okay. I was guarding every one I had. Well you had all that, that sheep that I wanted, that Romney sheep. You kept getting the Romney sheep and I just couldn't seem to get one. So, yeah. so I guess it was just the different ways that our games emerged. It, it's true, but there are so there are these deck building cards in addition to that, which when you draw, you can just um, you know get their effect and immediately discard them and draw a new one, and that's a nice addition because instead of your deck just getting smaller, you now kind of cycle through it you, faster, yeah, yeah, and and you find these little treats like that you put in there yourself earlier. It's like oh yeah, I got that card earlier. It's nice. It feels good, you know? So there are nice little moments like that, you know, sort of peppered through the game. But overall, the game is much more punishing and stingier than it was before, right? And to me, who's enjoyed Great Western Trail in the past, it feels like, you know, just just a puzzle that that asks more of you. It It, it pushes you harder, it, it asks you to be a bit more ruthless with your decisions. It asks you to be um, more precise in, in what you're doing and more calculated. Um, and, and a lot of the new elements work towards that, I think. But, but one of the th ones that don't is this new shipping track, which, which feels like a whole third of the game just mm. extra bolted onto it. Yeah, I, I enjoyed those little bits as well, mm. uh, like, like cycling through your deck quicker rather than having to make a decision about which card you're permanently removing from a game uh you're just cycling through it. and and like you said getting those little bonuses like getting a certificate or getting a gold or whatever you know mm -hmm. uh, and it's that's nice and uh, not a gold sorry a coin mm -hmm. uh, and that's that's nice because that might help you uh decide what your next goals are going to be and i think that led to some interesting decisions that i wouldn't have been able to make otherwise Right. It le led me into different paths than I wouldn't have done otherwise, because I knew if I had this card, I could maybe then draw uh, different sheep. Mm. Right. And 
yeah so I, I did I did like those sorts of things I will say though uh, this game took me nearly an hour to set up <laughs> oh wow that's that's long setup time. That's, that's long... voidfall setup time. I think I think it was just me, but I know it that was nearly an hour because I got through two episodes of the Twilight Zone <laughs> while I was doing it. Hey, maybe the Twilight so, Zone is the problem. Maybe it was, um, but it, yeah, it took a long time to to and and it, it spread all over the table. That's why it took so long because I set stuff up, then went ah, oh, this isn't going to fit. Okay, I'll move it this way. So it, it takes up the entire table, and our table is not small, mm. right? but it, it's, yeah, it's sprawling. Returning to those uh, more punishing bits, and mm. I wanted to highlight an example of that. So in Great Western Trail previously, when, when you made a delivery, you got to take off a disc from your player board, unlocking a new ability, and then you put it on the scoring pile, and then that gives you money and gives you points at the end of the game. Great. Now... <laughs> like the better spots genuinely just cost you a lot of money most of the money you've just made just goes away to pay for things mm. and i think you'll know whether so first of all don't get this if you not play great western trail but you'll know you'll like this if a you like great western trail and the sound of it being very much harder to execute you know very much harder to kind of manage your money and things things just being tighter strategically not mechanically strategically because it's not mechanically tighter it's all over the place did you ever find that you were uh lacking in money or or yes sheep? yes many a time yeah many a time i felt like i was struggling and it was only towards the end that my strategy kind of blossomed but what is is really nice is that um if you are lacking in money there are those sheep sharing spaces which will give you money Right. Mm. So and, and that will also. So in, when uh, in the previous Great Western Trails, uh, when you turned in your sheep, whatever was left in your hand, you discarded. Yeah. In this one, you don't. Uh, so but but like you said, you know, you can only uh, turn in one of each type of sheep. They don't want multiple mm. <laughs> for, for whatever reason. They don't want multiples of the same type of sheep. So if you know that you've got a hand that's got uh, similar sheep and it's the same sheep, you can shear them and uh, get some money. Uh, and then, you know, or or keep it in your hand. And mm. then when you go back to the beginning, you know, use it for something else. Or you can make shearing your whole strategy like I did, you know, mm. uh, get gets get a lot of shearers. So there's now four types of workers instead of three. Again, di diversifying the whole thing, you know, strategically. Uh, there's more ways to go about things and there's more puzzles to consider. And for someone who's who's played you know a fair amount of great western trail not a lot but a fair amount i enjoyed this and i i respect why you didn't because i felt like it was too much for you wasn't it you said you also enjoyed the the difference in the the way the uh, rounds attract yes uh, i did rather than being one board where where you're taking the people off and blah, blah, uh -huh. blah there are two so, so I know that you didn't like it, right? Because for for you, immediately, it's like, why why isn't just this one board, right? Why is it now split up? So before, uh, you had all the workers and all these hazard tiles and stuff like that in one big clump, and it made the round tracker go down, 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 eventually, until you bump it off. Every time you make a delivery to Wellington, you add tiles to this board. So now there's two boards. You add tiles to the worker board where there's just the four types of workers and then there's these bonus tiles 
uh, that pushed the round tracker down, actually, and they sort of separated out. And the reason I like that is because at a glance, I was like, oh, okay, so these are the workers that are available. These are their prices. I can... I can see that information and parse it much better rather than everything being in just one big clump. And also mm. you can predict prices of workers, whereas before they fluctuated between, oh, workers are really expensive now. Oh, they're really cheap. Now it's like, okay, there's a lot of that worker. They're cheap. Yeah. Easy, right? Yeah. I But I found the opposite. Mm. I found the opposite to be true. And I think that's why I didn't like it. I found it more difficult to to figure out what was going on. Uh, with the two boards then if there's just one board and okay the the price varies uh, but it always it still does you know like mm. uh, because if there are more workers uh, in in this game they're going to be cheaper if there are fewer they're going to be more expensive like I don't know I don't know it just it just didn't gel with me and I I think that was the whole thing about this game it, it felt like um I was continuously trying to, I think I said to you, it felt like there was an octopus and I was trying to like grab all his tentacles and just couldn't, yeah, at the same time and just couldn't manage to do that. And I think, I don't think that's a criticism of the game. And I think that if you enjoy, like you said, you know, if, Mm. if you enjoy having loads of different things to think about and having loads of different paths to, to go down, um, I think you it will be a game that you you will like but but for me it felt like all the things that were nicely contained in Great Western Trail had just mm. been chucked out on the floor like like having two different tracks I loved the sheep shearing I th- I thought that was great that that you could discard a sheep that you didn't necessarily want to turn in for money that was super mm. um and and you know it made you plan your route uh, of how you would you know land on the sheep shearing space uh, and how you manage to build in. Do you want to add another sheep shearing building or do you want to go in a different direction? You know, so, but having two different tracks for delivering sheep, delivering wool uh, and having, it just felt like everything was going off in various directions. And there's that, that bird I, track as well. Like, oh, the bird track. There's a whole yeah. track that's just a track. Just go up the track. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but and it will unlock certain things. It will unlock certain spaces that you yeah. cannot build on. But it is just a track. Until you have moved the bird up this yeah. this number of spaces. And the, and it will give you tiny bonuses as well. Like it will I, I like the fact that there was the bonus on the bird track of you don't have to pay for hazards anymore. When you mm-hmm. move through hazards, that was really useful. That was a funky new addition, yeah. And so there's a lot of these like little quality of life improvements where it doesn't improve, and where I think it really buckles under the weight of all these added rules is the rule book, uh, because so Great Western Trails rule book was never like amazing, but it taught you the game, right? It certainly had its own style of how it wanted to teach it to you, and it followed that formatting in Great Western Trail Argentina as well, and now in New Zealand. But there's just a lot more rules. And I feel like that format that they've established previously of how it teaches you the game does not support all this added craft. It it just becomes too much. It's very bad for referencing. There's a glossary, but the glossary doesn't contain all the icons. It contains <laughs> some information. So sometimes you're trying to look something up and the rulebook is impossible when you're trying to scan for things. Like when you're trying to reference it uh, when you've already learned it. It's very bad at that. And the iconography is now more confusing and muddied. And yeah. I agree with you that there are just too many colors now. Like, I like Chris Williams's artwork. Yes, I, I think me too. I think the second edition of Great Western Trail looks beautiful. 
uh, I think Argentina is it's an okay looking game, right? But here it's just it's too much. Yeah, I I I also like uh, Chris Williams's artwork, but there was just like because the tiles are quite small to begin with that you place to build. Um, and half of them is taken up by a picture that you can't really see because it's quite small. Uh, mm. And then and then you only get the bottom bit that actually says what the tile does. Mm. And I found, I found it very difficult to sort of glance at the board and know what was going on and know where I wanted to be. I, I was continually, because it's, again, it's a sprawling game, I was continually standing up and like arching myself over the board to see what was going on. And it was not comfortable. It was not a comfortable play. Uh, for that okay here's here's to wrap up you know Mm -hmm. here's my verdict on it i think it was a weird decision to do great western trail argentina and new zealand as standalone games because from a marketing perspective it's like oh hey there's a new great western trail game so what you expect is you know maybe a new twist but not necessarily a much more complicated game and if you're doing two of them you expect one of them to maybe be a little lighter, one of them to be a little heavier, right? No, it was heavier and then heavier in some, right? And so that was a weird decision. I don't view these as standalone games. I view these as expansions to Great Western Trail who who couldn't contain everything. Like, they had to print so many things, might as well print a new game. They had to do sheep because you can't share a cow. Right, so you need you need a whole new board. You need you need. They could have milk in cows, though. You could have delivered milk. I suppose I don't know. I this felt to me more like just just an expansion that needed so many components that it was a whole new game. You said you this was to wrap up, but you also said earlier, let's put a pin in the uh, well, New Zealand. Well, yeah, okay, so. Um, so this is not coming from me. This is coming from people who are from New Zealand. Uh, specifically, Jay from Three Minute Board Games has commented about this a lot on social media. And some of the representation of New Zealand in this game is weird. Uh, this is not a new move for Alexander Fister, who's got himself into many hot waters, including some voiced by us in the past. So uh, there is that. But... But, okay, I just, you know, I, I have one question to ask. Why do board games keep doing New Zealand dirty? What What's wrong? What's happening? Why did pandemic exclude New Zealand from the world map? Everything else is on there. New Zealand, ah, no, just, it, it, you know, forget about it, right? It doesn't exist. Uh, but it's weird. So um, the shipping track I mentioned, the second whole board where you ship, right? It looks like what is New Zealand, Right. And a whole bunch of islands the size of New Zealand to the west of it, which in the real world don't exist. If you open up the Google Maps, you or know, any other map. or any other map, you will look to the west of New Zealand and you will find some water and then Australia eventually. Um, so, uh, but, but now there's these whole islands that you sh- make deliveries to. You ship the sheep, uh, which again, according to Jay from Three Minute Board Games, who kindly informed me that... Uh, New Zealand did not ship sheep to like a local network of trade routes because it never established those trade routes. It just shipped them to Australia, who then shipped it to Britain because. Well, yeah. Okay. Because let's let's not talk about that. Yeah, because yeah. Britain. But but what's weird about that, right? Is first of all, it represents New Zealand poorly because mm-hmm. it invents um, something that didn't happen, right? 
and adds it. Uh, and then it invents these whole places that don't exist. And in somewhere in between there, they could have scored a good goal, right? They could have said, hey, we don't want to mimic, you know, nasty history. We don't want to mimic colonialism. We want to present a New Zealand that had its own shipping network. Maybe that's good if you actually used the many islands that are somewhere yeah, there's, near. There's a lot of islands uh, yeah. belonging to New Zealand. But not like made up fictional no. ones, <laughs> no. right? Like they almost had it. And as long as they put it in the rule book as well, that that's what they're doing. You know, that they're making this fictionalized version of New Zealand with these purposes, uh, in which case you should probably have a good cultural consultant, you know, to run that <laughs> by. I don't think this exists, right? I don't think this exists in this game. Uh, so they, they almost had something there. But I think uh, right now it just looks weird. And I think a lot of uh, I've seen a lot of correspondences on social media from players from New Zealand who are a bit upset because it's like, what is this? This isn't New Zealand. Yeah, it's nice to have a game about New Zealand, but represent New Zealand properly. Yeah, correctly. Right. So, yeah, uh, some weird choices there. And I think people should be aware. That's all the games. If you have anything to say about any of them, don't forget to drop me an email, elaine at nopunincluded.com, or if you have any general questions or comments. Stephen has emailed to say, In your last podcast, there was a discussion on one of your listeners' comments about having lower quality friends than the SUSD crowd. While I think they've chosen the wrong term to make their point, the real lesson is in understanding the social dynamic in your regular playgroup. Just want to correct that. It wasn't our listeners. People say this a lot on the internet. This is, if you go on Reddit or somewhere like that, you know, this this will be a, a sentiment that's echoed quite often and, you know, frustratingly so. I mean, I don't, I don't see how these two things relate. Um, yes, it is important to understand the social dynamics of your playgroup. I've always been a very big advocate of that, actually. Uh, I, I think... Oftentimes, people will say things like, oh, how do I teach this more complicated game to my friends when they're zoning out and they're spending time on their phone? I can't get them to play this more complicated game. That's your friends telling you they don't want to play the more complicated game. It's not their speed. Pick something lighter, you know? And and I'm not saying that to be disparaging. Like, really, really, I'm not. I'm saying this from the friendliest place possible because you know this is part of being a good host and part of being you know someone who wants to introduce people to board games is introducing people to the board games that they will enjoy and it's a difficult thing i like i know this i, I I've, I've recently been introducing someone to board games and I made mistakes in terms of uh, p picking the right themes, picking the right complexity. You know, it, it's a trial and error process. But when your friends are not having a good time, that's them maybe not indirectly telling you they're not having a good time. Maybe because, you know, the game isn't right or, you know, the mood isn't right. The atmosphere isn't right. Um, something is off and forcing then that wrong game on them it's not going to work. So yes, I, I agree. Understanding social dynamics of your group is very important. I don't understand how it relates to that comment. Maybe it's because of something I said in the past episode. I don't know. Anyway, I agree in broad terms, yes. Finally, Efka, what is the game of the episode and what can people find in the bonus episode this time? Oh, well, for me, it's schadenfreude. I don't know about you. Yeah, schadenfreude. Yeah? Well, mm. we're once again in agreement. 
The game of the episode is Schadenfreude. And in the bonus episode for our Patreon subscribers, uh, we have talk of 535, uh, which is a neat little climbing shedding game, which is an offshoot of trick-taking. And also Fantasy Realms uh, in relation as well to Bandito, which we discussed in a previous bonus episode. So tune in for that if you're a subscriber. And if you're not, consider it. It's cool. It supports us. And that's the end of the episode. And with that, why don't you say goodbye to poor representation of New Zealand. Goodbye, poor representation of New Zealand. Goodbye, poor representation of New Zealand. <laughs>